is happening now. We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Lisa Poleski and David Woodard are in the newsroom. Will Weber is on the board. Today, my dad is celebrating his 38th anniversary on the radio. Oh, really? Sheesh! Oh, that's not... How old are you? Nice! Where's the love? Where's the love and respect? Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson and Will Weber on the board. In the newsroom watching the world spin around, Dave Woodard and Lisa Pileski. They'll all be joining us around the big round table coming up after the 4.30 news. Love to have you there, too. And if you want us to uh, talk about something uh, and debate it, throw it on the table, per se. Uh, you can send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. Uh, what else we got here uh, up the sleeve? Oh, uh, we got another jam-packed show, and I hope you hang around for it. And it won't be inter- interrupted by any news conferences or any of that sort of stuff hopefully we can get through a friday uh, relatively unscathed uh another uh small business spotlight coming up this hour and uh, featuring the electric diner and and as well did you know that today uh speaking of you know pressing issues and and things that will change the the earth and, and the way it spins it's national uh bobblehead hall of fame day did you know that? And and apparently they're introducing two Justin Trudeau bobbleheads. One clean shaven and one with a beard. Why not one in blackface and one not? Uh, anyway, we'll talk to uh, the co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. Yes, there is one. Uh, that's coming up a little later on on a Friday afternoon, also later on this hour. Uh, and also some very sad news. And, and you know, I, I remember uh, Graham Smith and, and, and his journey that he told on this radio station many times uh, about starting uh, Gorilla Cheese, uh, a great food truck. And, you know, th- this was a guy that was very much behind this movement and lobbied a, an awful lot to get uh, the really healthy food truck uh, business that we have well, prior to the pandemic and all. And Hamilton very much cutting edge on on uh, with uh, food trucks and such. And uh, Graham lost his battle with cancer. And I was so sad to see this on social media uh, because he was such a great Hamiltonian, such a uh, such a success story with Gorilla Cheese and, and everything he tried to accomplish with that. It's unfortunate that um, we couldn't see how far he could, he could have gone with all of this. And we're going to talk to some of his uh, close friends and people that were um, uh, that knew him and, and were riding shotgun uh, with the food truck business and uh, and get their take on on a great Hamiltonian who uh, who uh, we all know to uh, to love or any any f- festival or or event you went to and saw the gorilla the black gorilla cheese uh, truck. I still have stickers somewhere stuck up on the garage wall uh, that he gave me one time. Uh, also, Michael Marini uh, is going to be joining us from the city of Hamilton to uh, talk about this as well. Also, uh, the mayor of Toronto said yesterday long-term care residents in that city will receive their fourth booster shot uh, as we get into uh, the most vulnerable with the fourth shot. Well, many are waiting for the third. We'll talk about that coming up a little later. 
later on. Also, as I mentioned, the roundtable with Dave and Lisa and Will will be joining us after the 4.30 news. And again, if you want uh, something to uh, for us to talk about, feel free. We would love to hear from you. Also, some interesting news coming out of long-term care. And we certainly remember uh, during uh, the early stages of this pandemic that long-term care was just, you know, hit tremendously hard. And there were lots of deaths and and the center is just a, a lot of them not set up to to deal with uh, a global pandemic. And um, so as a result, we've we figured that out and, and we've got them vaccinated and, and, and the, the, the death rate and such and, and the positivity rate in long term care lurch, uh, virtually uh, uh, turned around as soon as we got the, the tools to get it done, uh, so to speak. But now the problem is, and we all know what we're dealing with, uh, with the Omicron virus, the variant, that, uh, you know, we're starting, you know, we've clamped down in the last week or so. And many are wondering if the kids will be back to school in January uh, 17th. But again, nothing to say at this point that they won't be. They're talking about high schools now. But do you do that sort of thing with long-term care or do you just lock them down again? And I'm, you know, we're dealing with the same thing with my mother who's in long-term care. And, um, you know, do you keep them confined to their rooms uh, as a precaution or is that... Uh, is that too much? Is that uh, an extreme measure? And should they be handled the same way? Should we be looking at it the same way in the long-term care centers as we are in the community and learning more to live with it? Or is that just out of the question and we just have to lock them down? Uh, because many of them have been, you know, f- for months again. I mean, I haven't seen my mother since Thanksgiving weekend. So uh, it's it's one of those scenarios. And, you know, you're trying to find the balance. You want to keep them safe. But on the other hand, and you don't want to lock them up in a cage. So we'll have that discussion coming up a little later on and see if we can find any sort of, uh, of common ground. Uh, yesterday's roundtable, we started talking about different opinions. And Lisa Pileski brought up some great points and said, you know, there's so many different opinions now uh, because social media has given everybody virtually a voice. But just because we have so many opinions, does that mean we've lost the art to agree to disagree? Does that mean I'm right, you're wrong, vice versa? You know, just because there's more opinion, does that dilute the quality of the ability to debate. We're going to have that discussion coming up a little later on. Also, what else we got? Oh, um, January, February, times for Canadians to travel, especially south. Uh, Air Transat canceling 30% of their uh, flights for uh, anything from winter weather to uh, not being able to uh, staff the flights and such. So we'll give you an update on all of that. Also, Sidney Poitier, legendary actor, passed away at the age of 94 today. We'll talk about that. All right. Uh, did you know that today was National Bobblehead Day? Well, what the heck is wrong with you? What have you? What are you wasting your time on that you don't even know that today is the National Bobblehead Day? Do you even know what an, a bobblehead is? Do you know the history of the bobblehead? Did you know that there is a Justin Trudeau bobblehead on the way? Yeah. Uh, Let's get you updated on all of the pressing things in the world of a bobblehead. Phil Sklar is with us, co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum, and is with us now. Phil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, thanks for having me, and all is well here in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So is there an actual natural uh, bobblehead uh, Hall of Fame in Wisconsin? Yes, I just uh, walked through it and 
And uh, here at the museum, we have about 7,000 unique bobbleheads. And anybody listening can actually take a 360-degree virtual tour uh, right on our website and visit the museum 24-7, 365 uh, from the comfort of your home or office or wherever you may be. I have been on there, and it is quite a collection. How did all of this start? Let's start with the museum, and then we'll get to some history of the bobblehead. But but give us a a bit of backstory with the museum itself. Yeah, so it really just started with one bobblehead. Uh, The other co-founder, Brad, was working for a minor league baseball team in Rockford, Illinois, about an hour and a half away from Milwaukee, and uh, it was about 2003, and we enjoyed the bobblehead and started to circle bobblehead dates on the calendar. And before we knew it, our collection grew to 10 and then 100 and then 1,000. And then uh, 2013, we announced the idea to have a Hall of Fame and museum dedicated to bobbleheads. And at that time, we had about 3,000 unique bobbleheads and uh, partially came about by uh, producing a bobblehead as well as a super fan and special Olympian. And so we put those two ideas together and uh, opened the museum on February 1st, uh, 2019. What do you think is the fascination with the bobblehead? Why do why do people, why does this get their attention? Yeah, so I think it's a couple things, primarily just that fun aspect. You know, you can have it on your desk or mantle or wherever you keep them and uh, just, you know, nod the head and puts a smile on people's faces. And then I think the second thing is just a perfect way to show off your you know, pride or fandom for whoever it might be, whether it's an athlete or team or a politician or whatever the case might be. So um, what is the history of the bobblehead? Because this, it started a while ago, from what I understand, like in the 50s, and then sort of had a resurgence. So give us a bit of history of the bobblehead itself. Yeah, so it actually dates back a bit farther than that. So late 1700s, uh, there's a painting of Queen Charlotte in her dressing room at Buckingham Palace. The late and 1700s, that is a little before the 50s. Holy yeah, smokes. Yeah, and there's two figures behind her, and their heads actually nod. And we actually have a couple who we recently acquired similar to those. But, um, yeah, and then fast forward, you know, those type of decorative figurines were around for a while. Uh, but 1960 is the key year, and that's when... Uh, bobbleheads were made for basically all the professional sports teams, officially licensed bobbleheads that were available to purchase at stadiums and corner stores. And uh, those are sort of that generic boy-faced bobblehead that people are, might be familiar with. And uh, then they sort of faded out again in the 70s and 80s. But 1999, the San Francisco Giants gave away the first bobblehead at a stadium. And uh, that sort of uh, sparked every other team in the country and Canada, U.S., uh, you name it, to do bobblehead giveaways, and sort of the rest is history. And uh, now, does the museum actually produce them? Because now it's become a customized thing. You can do your own, you know, people you know, you can do your own figures, uh, sports teams, as you said. Uh, d- what about producing these things? Yeah, so we produce in all quantities. So whether it's somebody looking to get a gift for a loved one or, you know, boss, we do single bobbleheads, and then we do uh, large runs for teams, organizations, and also just uh, to sell on our website and at the museum as well. A bobblehead of your boss. <laughs> so what do you need in order for that to happen? Just a picture? How do you do this? Um, so basically picture and money. Uh, so, yeah, you just go on our website and uh, upload some pictures and choose a body, and that's uh, about all we need. And then they're hand-sculpted from there and um, the single one-off bobbleheads generally range around the $120 mark. And so, uh, obviously, I'm sure, as like with sports figures, politicians are a big deal here. Tell us about the Justin Trudeau, uh, Prime Minister of Canada bobblehead. 
Yeah, so we, we're excited today on National Bobblehead Day to release the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau bobbleheads. Actually, we did two versions because we couldn't decide whether to do with beard or without beard since he sort of has went back and forth. Uh, but both in the U.S. and from Canada, we get quite a few requests for bobbleheads of uh, Justin Trudeau. I think some of it comes from uh, people who have sort of an affection for him, um, maybe not uh Politics-wise, but I uh, think he's cute, and we get right. quite a few more requests than we expected. So we said, hey, well, let's do a bobblehead, and um, about half the people want beard and half want no beard, and some people want both, so uh, it's sort of a good mix. Wow, I guess it's a great idea to come up with a set. You could do, like, for example, all the different Elvises. Holy smokes, you could go on forever. Uh, how? So the, the Prime Minister bobblehead, it was just because you had so many requests from individuals for one of, of our Prime Minister, or was there one organization that said, yeah, I'm going to start all this? Nope, so it was basically just requests. We keep track of people who, you know, if they'll email in or call or even at the museum, we have a post-it wall where people can put bobbleheads they want to see, and we you know, pay attention to the trends and see, oh, yeah, a lot of people are asking for a particular bobblehead. We'll try to get one, get them made. Are there going to be any other versions other than the be- uh, bearded version and non-bearded version? <laughs> we'll have to see what people say, and uh, they have been going really well so far. So these are numbered to 2022, uh, each version. So once they're gone, they're gone. But, um, yeah, if they sell out and or sell well, then I'm sure we'll look into doing some other versions. I've heard uh some different costumes might be fun, but uh, we'll have to see. see oh, man, Phil. Yo, that's opening up a massive can of worms up here. I'd go for that, pal. I would go, go do a, uh, a Justin Trudeau costume series. Boy, we could come up with a half a dozen of them right now. Uh, that's that's <laughs> hilarious. So any idea how many Trudeau bobbleheads you're going to sell? Um, you know, it's, they've been going strong. We've had several new releases today, and with National Bobblehead Day, it's our craziest day of the year. Um, so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if they sell, you know, sell out or get close to that because they've been, you know, selling briskly today and there's the news has gotten out. That's hilarious. Well, congratulations to you and happy national bobblehead day to you, uh, Phil. Happy national bobblehead day to you, Scott, and everybody else there and everybody listening. Phil Sklar has been with us, co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. It's located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And, man, take a peek at the website. They got everything there. Uh, Phil, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, Very sad uh, the other day to learn via social media that uh, the owner of Gorilla Cheese, and you might remember the black Gorilla Cheese uh, food truck, uh, famous for these incredible grilled cheese uh, sandwiches. Uh, Graham lost his battle with cancer, and uh, very sad to hear that because Graham was on the show several times and was incredibly instrumental in uh, in starting the food truck business in Hamilton, which really then exploded across the country. And, you know, the, some of the biggest part w- was just getting um, the okay from, uh, you know, officials and city officials and such to, to have these sort of rolling restaurants uh, on the road and uh, so you know sat on so many fronts because he was such a great guy such an entrepreneur and such a Hamiltonian and and such an innovator when it came to the food truck business uh, I want to introduce you to Jody Rutterham co-owner of Cake and Loaf Bakery who knew Graham and is with us now Josie thank you for the time I hope you're well I am well thank you Thanks for so how me. did you know Graham 
Uh, so I met Graham. I want to tell you a quick story about when I actually met him the first time. Sure. Um, I met Graham in 2012. Uh, we had been like talking on social media probably for like a couple months talking about providing bread to Gorilla Cheese. And uh, he told me to meet him at this warehouse in the middle of, uh, I don't know if it was like Stelco or DeFasco. It was very intimidating. You know, I went, I met him at the hmm. warehouse. We had to put on hard hats and safety gear to get to his office. It was a glass office overlooking the warehouse. And he was just so cool and just so, you know, very old school Hamilton, but without the misogyny. And I thought at first, like, I don't know if this is going to work. Like, he's, they're very different than us. And then I, he sat down at his desk and he pulled out his school project which was Gorilla Cheese. When he had been to culinary yeah. school, he had done this school yeah. project on this grilled cheese truck. He was going to be the first grilled cheese truck in Canada. And he instantly transformed into just like this five-year-old kid. He was so excited. He was so passionate. Um, and I just knew like in that moment, like he had something special and I had to work with this guy um, because that's what he so, carried to everything he did. Uh, boy, I, I remember hearing that story from him when he told that on the air as well. Uh, so <laughs> where did your, where did it go from there? So we, uh, he was looking for custom bread. Grilled cheese uh, had these like big grilled cheese sandwiches. If anyone um, yeah. had them, you know what I'm talking about. And so he was looking for custom bread. And so for years we worked together. My bakery, Cake and Loaf, uh, made him bread. Uh, we went with them to City Hall to to fight for food trucks in Hamilton because it was really difficult at the time. It was a new concept, and and restaurants were really scared. Um, and people were not into food trucks. So they not not just Graham, but everyone at Grilla Trees really had to pioneer that for Hamilton. And I so, remember this very I remember this very vividly because he would come in on the air and talk about this and uh, you know, the whole idea of a food truck in Gorilla Cheese seems now obvious, but not yeah. only was this groundbreaking on what he was doing with his own truck and with his own menu. But this was blazing a massive trail within municipalities because, as you said, restaurateurs weren't weren't too excited about this at the beginning. They thought that it might threaten them. But, of course, yeah. what it ended up doing is just drawing more attention to any area in which they went. But talk a little bit about that and how much he was such an activist for this industry. Yeah, I mean, because, like I said, like he just brought that passion to everything he was doing. So he... You know, he saw what was going on and he just kind of said, I'm not going to put up with that. Like, we're going to blaze a new trail. We're going to make things different. Um, and it meant pushing a lot of boundaries, like at City Hall, with restaurants, um, also with like the people of Hamilton. Like Graham was, um, you know, he's an ex-steel worker. He completely changed his career to focus on food trucks. So he brought kind of a different approach to it, which I, I personally found refreshing, like this whole community over competition. I really think he was a pioneer for that, too. Like everything was about collaboration. Everything was about building these huge food truck events, right? It was never about Gorilla Cheese's success. It was about how do we get delicious food to everyone in the city? You know, and, you know, that's a very... That's a very interesting point, Josie, because I remember him. Uh, it was almost like it became a movement, and it was these group of, of food truck owners that all were all working together. It was very much a, a common industry. It was. It was a wonderful community. I mean, it still is a wonderful community, but I think right yeah. at the beginning there, um, you know, we were all kind of on Twitter together, and we were just like we were all at the beginning of building these dreams. Um, and so there was a whole generation of food trucks that really grew up, and, and food businesses that grew up with Gorilla Cheese and Graham. He was quite a visionary, wasn't he? Because, again, I remember him telling the story about the grilled cheese and the, uh, and the school project and such. But I think he always wanted a, a bricks-and-mortar location, and the, and the food yeah. truck sort of spun out of that, which was pretty visionary back then. 
It was, yeah. I mean, honestly, I kind of laughed when I first heard the idea because I, I didn't know it was going to go anywhere. <laughs> but I thought, I mean, this yeah. guy's got it, so let's let's see where he's going. All right. Uh, he will be missed. Josie, thanks for sharing the memories. Much appreciated. Thank you. He will be missed. He was um, such a generous soul. Josie Rutterham with his co-owner of her own great establishment, the Cake and Loaf Bakery. Check that out as well. Josie, thanks for the time. Be well. I wanted to bring in uh, Michael Marini at this point uh, with Economic Development, a marketing coordinator with the city of Hamilton, and talk a little bit more about uh, the food truck business in this city and how uh, the founder of Gorilla Cheese, Graham Smith, was such a part of, the, of this. Many of you who have been to functions throughout the city, uh, festivals, what have you, saw the black Gorilla Cheese uh, food truck serving up the best grilled cheese man you're ever going to taste and uh, Graham was a big part of uh, not only that truck and, and one of the first in the city but also in this wave that, that pretty much went across the country and, and making this all more acceptable to uh, those in, in, you know, in, at the city and in restaurants and such and with us now Michael Marini. Michael thank you for the time Happy New Year. I hope you're doing well Happy New Year Scott. Hope you're well as well uh, very sad to hear about the loss of uh, Graham Smith uh, losing his battle with cancer. He was on the show many times as you were talking about the food truck industry. Talk a little bit about how instrumental he was in moving this whole movement forward. Yeah, and first and foremost, my condolences to his friends and family who are mourning his loss at this time. Mm. It's it's a loss not only for them but for the entire city. Uh, he was he was a champion, not only for the culinary sector in Hamilton, but, but certainly a champion for Hamilton in general. Uh, you know, it was uh, back in 2010 that he came into our Small Business Enterprise Center and uh, wanted, had this idea for a food truck, a grilled cheese food truck. And, uh, you know, the team there at, at our uh, Hamilton uh, Business Center, we used to be called the Small Business Enterprise Center, they were instrumental in, uh, you know, helping them along. And then they kind of handed him off to me and, and we got the uh, promotion machine in, in motion. So, Getting to know Graham uh, over all those years, uh, he was a great guy. Uh, I, I talked to him a number of times, uh, worked with him on a number of projects. He was he was instrumental in, in the uh, revolutionary bylaw we had for food trucks. It was a uh, best practice across Canada uh, for trying to build up a food truck scene in a city. And um, I can't say enough about you know just just his positivity towards Hamilton in general. Uh, there's there's two individuals I point to. Uh, probably in the last several years, who were who were huge boosters for Hamilton's food scene. One was Dave Hanley, and sadly we lost him uh, several years ago. Uh, Pop up Hamilton and uh, Graham Smith was right up there as well, uh, just promoting uh, food and the city itself. He really changed a lot of minds, uh, a lot of opinions, uh, and a lot of attitudes towards uh, towards Hamilton for the for the better every time. He was a true visionary, and at a time when food trucks weren't really uh, thought of as, uh, well, they didn't have a great reputation. And then there was this movement that came in that changed all of of that and made them sort of gourmet food trucks as opposed to, uh, you know, street meat sort of thing. And and, and a lot of people, that met with a lot of resistance at the beginning, didn't it? Because they were sort of, you know, I know some restaurateurs weren't happy with it, and obviously it was an issue with permitting and such. Uh, It was a difficult difficult thing to make maneuver at one point wasn't it absolutely so you know this is this is a good example of good public policy and mm. uh, you know i'm not trying to get into the the nuts and bolts of, of uh policy making and uh, for all the uh those interested who don't want do want do not want to hear about how uh laws are made or how bylaws are made but you know there's a lot of give and take 
when you're trying to come up with some progressive public policy. And Graham was right in there uh, for those conversations, mm-hmm. not only with city staff who had an open mind, but also our BIAs, our Chambers of Commerce, they had an open mind as well because they were representing bricks-and-mortar locations. And so through dialogue, through understanding, through patience and time, uh, we all came to a consensus uh, as to what was best for the city. And I think uh, Graham was was really helpful in in trying to keep us on the big picture. He was a true visionary. He was. He was. And he was a team player. And I think when you have a team player... Uh, things go much, much smoother. And, and uh, I really point to uh, the rise of Hamilton's food truck scene uh, from 2010 onwards as uh, it, it was a team approach. And so we had other cities approach us from all over Canada and say, how did you do that? How did you make such a success? And at, at our peak, we were over 100 licensed food trucks in the city. And you had events like So Hungry down on uh, the Ottawa Street yeah. BIA and uh, Concession Street had a number of events with them there, Dundas BIA. So uh, everyone came around to the idea that it was good for everyone in some capacity. And and, uh, and I really point to Graham as, as being one of the leaders in, in that discussion. And, oh, yeah, the grilled cheese Sammies were absolutely to die for. My goodness, they were out of this world. He took it to a completely different level. Uh, Michael Mulraney with us, coordinator marketing for the city of Hamilton, talking about grilled cheese and Graham Smith and how he was an instrumental part in the food truck industry in this city. Michael, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Today, I'm Scott Thompson, Will Weber on the board and in the newsroom, making their way around the big round table, the virtual round table. Uh, joining us is Lisa Pileski and Dave Woodard. Thank you, table heads, for uh, joining us. Much appreciated. Hope you're all doing well today. Hello, hello. Hi. All right, let's get right to it, with we do the uh, which we do every day with a poll question of the day. This is fascinating, because this is a new spin on something that we've been talking about for years, in one form or another. But should fewer, the poll question of the day, which you can find on our Twitter page, should fewer health care resources go to the unvaccinated? 55% of you are saying yes. This reminds me of the discussions of, you know, people who are smokers, should they be getting, uh, you know, you know, a different level of care uh, or alcoholics or any of those people with poor lifestyles. Uh, should fewer health care resources go to the unvaccinated? Let's start with you, Lisa. What do you think? Uh, absolutely n- not. I really think that's a, such an ethical minefield to start really kind of yeah. the idea of treating anyone differently in healthcare just because of, you know, even if we are frustrated as all get out with people who refuse to get vaccinated for whatever reason, you know, that doesn't mean that we we treat them like less than human. I mean, and the idea of treating anyone with, the, you know, whether they have an addiction, alcoholism, something like that, lesser as well. I mean, that's still that's a health issue and we should be treating people, you know, as they deserve to be treated. So, no, absolutely not. Dave, your thoughts, especially as we push the healthcare system to its uh, brink. Well, I agree with Lisa, because at, at some point, what where is the sliding scale? Do you yeah. say if you had a booster, is that OK? What if you had two boosters? Is that then the scale by which you uh, which you go yeah, by? Right. Really. I mean, it's it's not as though you're sitting there saying, you know, if you're an alcoholic, you have to have X amount of drinks in a week. 
So I, I think that it's a it's a very slippery slope if you decide that you're going to say that uh, if you're vaccinated, that's the only way that you're going to get health care. Will, you want to weigh in on this? And 55% are saying yes. Are you surprised at that number? I'm kind of surprised. I mean, to, to the extent that I can be, I understand where people's frustrations are coming from, but we yeah. are a free and equitable nation. That's our thing. You can't just take away people's rights and freedoms arbitrarily, you know, especially when it's something as fundamental as healthcare. Well, then you guys start getting into things that would, if you disagree with the person politically, maybe you think that they yeah. shouldn't get the same amount of health care. It's, it's just not, that's absurd. So That's right. Yeah. If you're thinking that the health care needs some cuts, then when it's time for you to, you to go in, you don't get the full service. I yeah. Guess you have to go exactly. Yeah. I hear you there. All right. Uh, this is fascinating, too. Uh, I was on the uh, New York Times tracker, vaccine tracker. Uh, thing that they've got it tracks a uh, vaccine uptake all over the world to see how many uh, or what countries have uh, total vaccination so that'd be two dose i'm not including boosters here for the eligible populations in their countries 12 plus probably or 5 to 11 uh, you know obviously that's going to be going to be a sliding scale there but where we're sitting with the unvaccinated two shots united arab emirates 94 percent china 86 percent uh canada and australia 78 percent this is the total uh, eligible population in ontario it's 88 percent we go to the scandinavian countries have averaged uh, averaged it out to about 75 percent uk is about 71 percent of the population u.s 62 percent of the population russia 46 percent of the population we keep we we still despite unbelievable vaccination rates are hammering away at the 10% that aren't vaccinated or 15%. Are we naive in Canada to think we can get everyone vaccinated? Let's start with you, Lisa. What are your thoughts? Well, I, I don't think, I mean, do is anyone asking whether we, we think we're going to get everyone vaccinated? Because I think the goal all along was something like 90%, I want to say. That's that's what I remember anyway. Maybe Correct me if I'm wrong, someone jump in. I remember please. it starting at 60 at the beginning, yeah. and then 70, then 80, and and my goodness, Canadians, Ontarians jumped on board, and that was never an issue. Uh, yeah. Again, we're sitting in Ontario at almost 90%, certainly over 90% with one dose, and you're going to assume they got to get it the second. So those are pretty high. How much higher can we go? Because I'm thinking 5% uh, medical reasons, religious reasons, whatever, another 5%. Never going to get it. How are you going to get more? Why do we keep banging on this? And there's talking today about mandat- more mandatory restrictions in, in Parliament. You know, I, I don't think that anybody can Not in say Parliament, that, on the press conference. Sorry. Right. Go ahead, Dave. I, I don't know if they can get any higher than where we are. I think, yeah, you, uh, Dr. Moore from the beginning has said, we just want to get as many people vaccinated as we possibly can. And he talked about a 5 to 10% rate uh, that would never get vaccinated. Yeah. And he knew that. And I know that uh, the federal health minister Jean-Yves Duclos today was was musing about, you know, making vaccines mandatory, or at least that would be the uh, provincial jurisdiction that he was hoping that everybody would. Uh, but I don't think that that's ever going to happen. And there's a number of reasons. Medical exemptions are one, religious exemptions, or at least religious issues are another. Uh, plus, you just have people that have real big concerns about the vaccine, mm-hmm. as unfounded as that may be. So I don't think you're ever going to get 100%. And I don't don't think at this point anybody uh, who has anything to, to, to really um, say about it in terms of the, the medical field are, are expecting that we're going to get even close. Uh, Will, you want to weigh in on this? Yes. I, 
Honestly, I didn't even think that we had 100% of children vaccinated with the sock vaccine when that first came out. And that well, was, no, see, that's another you know, that's biggest, another issue. Right? That's another issue that comes out is people say, well, it's mandatory in school. And it's like, well, yeah, it is. But no, it's not. I mean, you're going to see less kids with the normal uh, routine of vaccinations than you are with COVID. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's what we're seeing between 5 to 11. The uptake still is very slow. So although you're supposed to have these vaccinations when you go to school, there are many students. And I would say it's as high as 15, 20% that are not vaccinated yeah that that's about where i stand i don't think that you can get anywhere i mean we might see a little bit bumping up if uh we continue as uh i believe it was dr tam suggested the uh just man mandates uh increased mandates there we go that's the phrase i'm looking for we, we might bump up a few more percent but 100 percent uh good good lord no yeah, I think we're sitting in Ontario. We're over 90% at the first shot. I don't see how you're going to get possibly more than that with a second shot. I, I just think we're we're just screaming politics at this point. It's a resounding right. success, really. Yeah, it is. You're absolutely right, Will. Instead of you know jumping on everybody who doesn't think the same way you do, and I'm fully vaxxed, I think everybody should be. But I also believe you can't just beat these people and hold them down and stick a needle in their arm. Uh, let's talk about the cost, because what we're finding out is our illustrious, uh, well-thought-of, uh, subsidized uh, uh, medical system in, in, in Canada is is really showing its weaknesses with this stress it's going through with Omicron. Many are saying it cannot be sustained. We need more money. Obviously, the provinces are paying the bulk of this now. When Medicare started, it was split at 50-50. Now, again, and there's formulas, but you know, many have said it's dropped to like 25%. Considering it's the largest cost, are we going to need to see more money from the feds for health care? We'll start with you, Elisa. Yeah, and I think this has definitely demonstrated that there is a need for more investment in it because we don't we don't want to go the way that the U.S. has gone for sure. I mean, that you see the kind of situations. I have a lot of friends who are in the U.S. and they talk about just the the misery of trying to navigate the private healthcare system. So we don't want that, but we do need definitely it needs more funding and the, we need more support for healthcare workers. You know, there needs to be something needs to change because this is clearly not sustainable, yeah. and you know we're going to be lucky if we can get through the really hard times. Dave, quickly. Yeah, I think that we do need to do more. and We need more money. How we get there is going to be the issue. I, there are com- uh, countries in uh, Europe who have uh, tax rates close to 50% that have great health care, uh, but you know half their paychecks are, are going to taxes. So it's somewhere in between, I think. All right, and we never got to the uh, Justin Trudeau bobbleheads that are coming out. One clean-shaven, one with a beard. There you go. We'll have to save that. Thank you, uh, Tableheads. Much appreciated. All right, we certainly know what... uh what COVID-19 is about and what it is meant to our uh, long-term care centers. As When this whole thing started, we know what long-term care went through and how this literally ravaged uh, the segment of the population, uh, which is why they were uh, the first to be vaccinated when the supply uh, eventually did come in and why they are getting boosters now. Uh, but many have uh, realized, especially with Omicron, with it spreading like wildfire, however less uh, evasive it appears at this point but it's got to the point where so many people have got it we can't even keep up with testing anymore it's not even worth doing in some cases uh and, and people are just uh, staying home and assuming that uh that they have it and such however uh, over and above
above all of that, we are seeing uh, schools, it looks like they're going to slowly start to reopen. We're seeing this in British Columbia. And many are realizing that we have to live with this as opposed to just shutting things down. However, in long-term care, obviously, it's a very different situation. Uh, and, and many have been locked down, stuck in their room again, because as soon as we hear the, these threats, it's obviously uh, the quick reaction, the first reaction that we see. But can we learn something from the communities? Can we learn that, that, you know, of perhaps other ways of handling this other than, of course, the seclusion that comes along with locking uh, down residents and such. Let, uh, such. Let's bring in Dr. Vivian Stanatopoulos, uh, Associate Teaching Professor at Ontario Tech University, long-term care advocate and co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care, and is with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, Doctor, uh, how how can we deal with this, especially at this stage of the pandemic in long-term care? Obviously, we're seeing, um, uh, you know, with vaccination and such that uh, for those who are, it, it hasn't been quite as severe. Uh, we're, we're trying to get the kids back into school. Is there any other option for long-term care, or is this segment of the population just so susceptible to this virus that the only thing we can do is, is restrict and, and lock them? down no and i think you said something really important when you were uh, in your lead up you, you know you said that it's kind of like a reaction and, and it is it's a knee-jerk reaction that isn't really well thought out a very paternalistic uh rather naive one to just lock down the facilities as the first resort because we know and all we have to do is look back to the first nine months of the pandemic when we locked family out of these facilities and it didn't stop outbreaks so that is not the measure that we need to take in order to, you know, clamp down on outbreaks. What we really need to do is, you know, spend some money, get some resources into these homes, provide N95s, provide enough rapid tests so they can, you know, do daily staff testing because we're missing cases by doing testing only twice a week and really making sure we prioritize boosters among both the resident, but particularly the staff population because, you know, we have about 80, well, we just heard the minister in an interview at 3.30 say that, you know, uh, in the past three weeks, they've increased the resident vaccination rate, you know, around three to four percent, up to 90 percent. But that still means there's almost 8000 residents without a third dose. But we have well under half of all the frontline staff having their third dose, which is very problematic, given the fact that, well, thankfully, because we have the mandate, we know that 99 percent of both the residents and the staff had their second dose, which will prevent them mm-hmm. from most of the time hospitalization, right? And the more severe outcomes, however, it doesn't prevent them from contracting Omicron, this, this crazy strain we're dealing with right now. But if they had the boosters, they would be less likely to contract the illness and then have to isolate. And, and the problem we're running into now is mass staffing shortages because the, the scale of Omicron spread. Um, and we didn't do enough over the last month to, to protect this sector. So we didn't get into the situation we're in right now, sadly. Uh, is it time to pivot how we're approaching this? Uh, and again, obviously, specifically, we're talking with long-term care. Obviously, the community is working on this, but it's different for long-term care. Is is it is it about learning to live with this now as opposed to uh, trying to prevent it, trying to stop it, trying to, to, to do the what could seem the impossible? Well, you know, it's about really looking at larger, more permanent changes. So I think the problem, particularly with long-term care, is that these it's all, it's constantly band-aid solutions for, for bullet holes, right? So like, you know, one of the things that we just heard today is that they're finally going to start deploying 
18,000 HEPA filters to long-term care, but, but this wasn't even on the radar for the last two years. It's only happening now because people like me were kicking up a fuss about it in the context of Omicron and knowing that we didn't have this for long-term care, but yet we were diverting to schools. Great. I think yeah. we should all have HEPA filters and we should all deal with air filtration. But a lot of these long-term care homes are old. You can't even open the windows in these residents' rooms. So we weren't even dealing with this until we just heard today we're going to get, we're going to start dealing with it. Right. So it's, it's, you know, it's one of those a day late and a dollar short, but I'll take the dollar. Even if it comes a day short, just, just let's, let's get on this. Let's get N95s to all the workers, not just when they're working with, you know, a COVID positive case, because we have a lot of asymptomatic spread and we don't know there might not be symptomatic cases. So we can't screen it out properly without rapid tests. So let's get the rapid tests for long-term care. Let's get 95s all the time for the workers and the caregivers that are visiting. Let's have, you know, a, a recruitment blitz so we can get enough workers because we've constantly had a problem with staff retention because of the conditions of work in these facilities. I mean, they're low paying jobs. It's not an enticing place to work because of the terrible, you know, staff to resident care ratios that, that people burn out and they leave long-term care. They leave for other settings. They leave for hospital care. They leave for home care. There's a reason for that. We need to address the working conditions in these homes, right? Um, and just letting in more essential caregivers. It's, it doesn't make sense to lock down the visits at the end of these poor residents' lives when we know we have many triple vaccinated family members who are happy to wear PPE, do whatever it takes to get in there and assist. And they should be allowed to. I'm not saying let in unvaccinated people, but if we have triple vaccinated family members who want to come see their loved ones and provide support, why not? Why are we clamping down to only two? Dr. Vivian, Dr. Vivian Stampatopoulos with us, associate teaching professor at Ontario Tech University and long-term care advocate, co-founder of Canadians for Long-Term Care, talking about visitation and opening up on restrictions. Doctor, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman. Uh, she's uh, pitch hitting for us here. I'm loving that and has jumped in a segment early because we can't get our uh, regular guest. Alyssa, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm always well and always glad to jump in when necessary, Scott. So thank you for having me. Man, you have saved us a couple of times during this global pandemic. Something I want to uh, bring up that we were talking about yesterday on the roundtable. And, you know, we've talked about this many times, the whole issue of division, uh, divisiveness, uh, whether it's in politics or anything. We, we've seemed to have lost the art to agree to disagree. I'm right. You're wrong. If you don't believe me, you know, you're this or you're that. Uh, and we had this debate at the roundtable yesterday, and uh, Lisa Plus, brought up one of our uh, news uh, reporters uh, news anchors brought up you know there's just so many opinions now in the old days it was traditional media and that's where people got their information if you wanted to exchange information you got on the phone you wrote a letter you did whatever now with social media virtually every organization every person has a voice they have a stage they have their own tv radio station what have you podcast but because, and that makes perfect sense, we've got so many people in the mix now, uh, you're going to get this. But are we? Just because we've got more players, more people in the mix, does that mean we have to lower the level of the debate? Does that mean the truth changes? Just because we're exploring extremes that perhaps didn't have a voice before, does that change the debate? No, but I mean, what I find is, is that people listen to the same voices and the same people, and that we develop our own echo chambers. So all we want to hear is people who agree with us. And that's easy to do. 
you know, if you are a Democrat and you don't like Republicans, then you don't follow any Republicans on Twitter. You just listen to people who or read people who only say things you agree with. I think that what we always have to keep in mind is what are other people thinking? What are people who are not like-minded like me thinking? And that's what develops a better, well-rounded opinion. You know, I know people who only listen to a certain type of news, and that's the type of information that she brings all the time. And I always question her and her sources. I'm like, okay, well, where'd you hear this? QAnon.ca? Like, I need to know. So I think what people need to understand is, is that if you're going to pursue or believe a certain piece of information, just don't take that one source as the gospel. Try and look at a few sources and be able to form a better opinion about it. And once we're more well-rounded in our opinions, we can have better, more well-rounded discussions. Does more opinion or more versions uh, of opinion, does that mean there's more than one truth? Well, <laughs> that's a loaded question, and I think it depends what you believe in. And, and, and you know, the problem with citizen journalism, with somebody having something to say about anything, you know, my husband and I have a joke, and the joke is about him, not me, Scott, let's be sure. <laughs> Everybody's entitled to my opinion. And believe yeah. me, it was a sticker that we bought many years ago at the Big Apple of the 401. So, but a lot of people believe that. And sometimes people start to believe their own press, or you get a little notoriety, and they, and they think that, you know, what, that what their opinion is, everybody should believe it. Look at somebody like uh, Joe Rogan, okay? Mm. I remember watching Joe Rogan on Fear Factor. I don't know if you ever watched that show. Yeah, I remember it. Fear yep. is not a factor for you. We used to watch it when I remember my daughter was a kid. Well, he's a comedian. He has an opinion. He's a point of view. Now he has a podcast. Joe Rogan doesn't want to take a vaccine. Joe Rogan gets COVID. Is that okay? No. But many people listen to him and take his truth as their gospel. So I think what it means is that, you know, it expands the truth. But that truth has to align with your belief system. And that's where you get differences of opinion. So are we likely to see a change in any of this in any way? Uh, are we going to, as citizen journalists, learn to become more responsible? Not at all. <laughs> hmm. I think that it's only going to become more splintered, more fractured, you know, when you look at this, um, when you saw President Biden speak yesterday about um, the threat to democracy, well, there's a very, I would say, substantial but uh, vocal minority that doesn't believe him. So I think it, what it depends on is how well organized is your side of the opinion. Are they vocal enough that it doesn't matter whether they fact check or not? Because what we're finding is, is you know, President Trump used to throw out a fact there, substantiated or unsubstantiated, and Daniel Dale, who used to be work up here in Canada, is now with CNN, fact-checked everything, and 90% of it was wrong. But people were so opposed to anything Democratic that anything that came out of his mouth was considered gospel. So I think a lot of it depends on the mood or the environment, how people are feeling, what people want to think, um, their malaise around certain issues. 
And the group or the person who is able to tap into that and awaken a sense that has not been awakened before is someone who will tend to um, absorb and lead with that narrative. All right, I want to change the topic here, uh, Alyssa, uh, where lots of, of uh, talk about mandatory vaccine and lots of chatter about uh, uh, getting the rest of the population vaccinated. Are we naive in Canada to think we can get everyone vaccinated? United Arab Emirates, 94%. China, 86%. Canada and Australia, 78%. Ontario at 80%, over 90 with the first dose. Scandinavian countries, about 75 It goes down from there, 62% for the states, Russia 46. Uh, are we naive to think like we keep fighting over the last 10% of the population to get them vaccinated? Well, I think that you always have to try, and I don't think that you can give up. And I don't think that you can say, okay, well, we're at where we're at, so let's just leave it at that. I don't know if it's naivete. I think that in many cases that we are victims of a, a virus of misinformation. So I think the more often that we can try and promote the facts, the more often that, you know, to really talk honestly about the symptoms, who, who it's affecting and why it doesn't need to affect that, um, I think is important. You know, Scott, I'm still seeing on my Instagram feed, somebody that I used to respect says, hmm. look, they shut down all the restaurants and the, store, uh, the restaurants where people were supposed to be vaccinated and now we're all locked down. No, that is untrue. What they shut down was is that the people who worked at restaurants, you can't make people get vaccinated. And the spread was among the staff themselves. Mm. So I think that as long as you have people who are believing whatever truth, cockamamie truth that they have, that's people from getting vaccinated. The point is, is to keep putting out the facts, hope that people have trust in them and hope that you can still inch up that percentage of fully vaccinated people. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture expert. Alyssa, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thanks for having me. All right. want to continue on a discussion, which we were just having with Alyssa Freeman, uh, with our next guest. And uh, it came to a head sort of on yesterday's roundtable. And many times in the show, we've talked about how divisive things have come, especially politically. You're either on that side or you're on this side. There's no center anymore. Uh, and it seems that with um, as we progress with technology and everybody becomes or, or has a voice, that we've lost the ability, the art to agree to disagree, to debate, uh, and there are several versions of the truth. And Lisa Pulaski on the show yesterday brought up a great point and said, well, there's so many opinions now. Uh, now virtually everyone has a platform in social media when, of course, it was just the traditional media companies that would have this at one point. So now with everybody having an opinion, which is great, uh, does that mean the level of debate has to drop? Does that mean there's all of a sudden more than one truth? Does that mean we can't come together and find solutions or agree to disagree. Let's bring in Eric Merkley, PhD, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, and with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I am, and uh, thanks for having me. So, Eric, obviously more voices now uh, in the mix. Does this mean, or how has this changed the level of debate? Does this mean everything goes out the window because there's more people that have a say? 
Um, you know, I do, I do think it changes things. Um, more, more people have voice now, and but you know, it's worth noting that there's, there's a lot of upside to that. It means mm-hmm. marginalized voices that, that may not have once been able to attract attention to, you know, bring to light social injustice, um, they have more voice too. Um, but it also means that folks like anti-vaxxers also get more of a voice. Um, so there's upsides and downsides, but it's certainly true that social media um, gives a platform for a lot more voices. Uh, and journalists cue off those voices as well in, in their in their reporting of the news. So how do we keep this debate healthy? How do we, uh, you know, and a, cert- a certain amount of this was accentuated with, with Donald Trump, the former president of the United States. I remember Rudy Giuliani, uh, you know, splitting what the word truth actually actually meant. Um, just because more and more have, have a voice, how do we... How do we keep the level of debate? How do we keep the discourse uh, uh, above board, per se? Well, I think I think one of the biggest problems is, isn't the fact that uh, other that other people have voice. It's that there are elite sources of information, like say Donald Trump and Republicans, um, that are sowing misinformation, and that misinformation gets picked up by the press uh, and disseminated throughout the entire media ecosystem. Um, so it's not just, you know, r- random Joe on the street that, that that's really doing the work here. Uh, we we got we to gotta kind of acknowledge that it is these elite opinion leaders that are doing a lot of the damage. Um, and so and I don't really see much changing until um, dem- until norms have been reestablished about uh, what's acceptable or not at the elite level. How do we get to those norms? Uh, honestly, I'm I'm pretty pessimistic uh, at the moment. Uh, they they just kind of they they were always operating at some level um, in 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 mass democracies, and and they've broken down, especially in the United States, and and obviously we get spillover uh, in Canada as well. Uh, but it's 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 broken down in the United States, and so um, really the only thing that 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 I think can correct course is if the Republicans and 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 their allies. Um, suffer electoral defeats from that so that they get punished um, accordingly. Uh, unfortunately, they have the benefit of controlling, uh, of, of doing very well in the Senate because of how um, disproportionate the representation is in that chamber. Um, they do well in the Electoral College. They have, they have all these means that protect their power uh, to prevent themselves from being dislodged from that power. And so that makes things very difficult in the United States. Um, but we'll see where things go in the future. Obviously, yesterday, celebrating or celebrating, acknowledging the anniversary of the January 6th attack on on the Capitol in the U.S. specifically, um, many have said down there that this is a threat on democracy. Is this a threat on democracy? Or, you know, I mean, democracy has has had a lot of threats over over the yeah. generations. How big is this one? Well, and, 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 I, and I think you touched on an important point uh, implicitly there, that uh, we, we have a tendency to engage in golden age thinking. Um, for, for a lot of the, the history of the United States, it wasn't particularly democratic. Um, so, you know, think the Jim Crow era uh, in the South uh, up until the Civil Rights Movement. Um, think about the Civil War and, and the lead up to that. Um, so for a lot of American history, it hasn't been democratic in the, in the sense that we, we think of it today. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not going to say that, that the things that are going on right now are, are graver threats than than what's been uh, than what's happened in the past, because that I think is is mistaken. Uh, but it is it is troubling. It's troubling that we have uh, one major political party in the United States that is willing to kind of flout democratic norms 
uh, and they're and they're signaling all that all of this is acceptable to their supporters. And so Republican voters and the like are are kind of are along for the ride. And uh, so it is very troubling. And, and I do see some tough times for American democracy ahead. But those t- those, there's always been those tough times. So it's, it's, it's hard to say uh, how bad things will get. You talked to the positive of social media, the positives, and there has been plenty of that, uh, giving people a voice who didn't have it. Do you see this pendulum swinging back or balancing in any way without any sort of uh, uh, event or without any sort of regulation? Do you see this correcting itself? No, it won't. It won't correct itself. And, and, and the reason for that is a lot of the a lot of the features of social media kind of breed this this level yeah. of conflict. Um, uh, people presume a, a fa- what's called a false consensus bias. They see they see themselves getting a lot of likes, and so they do more of that. And the things that get likes are usually inflammatory comments. Um, and so, and, and you know, plus you know, you have a lot of accounts that have the benefit of anonymity, and people are free to to say whatever they want without consequence. Uh, so there's a there's a lot of factors about social media that that uh, breed a lot of negative consequences, and and, and really. Uh, and, and and that's not even to say everything about algorithms uh, and, and, yeah. and the importance that they have uh, on on things in terms of what we see, even if we're not engaging with uh, negativity on social media ourselves, we'll be seeing it all the time um, in our news feeds uh, and you really can't escape it. Um, and so, no, I, I don't. This is not a thing that's going to correct itself, especially when uh, political dynamics are so toxic uh, in the United States, and and we we of course because we have we share a, a lot of political culture with the United States, we we see what's going on on social media in the U.S. too. Uh, social media has that effect of breaking down barriers between countries, especially like countries. Um, so it's uh, you know we we get affected by that as well, um, and, and and until um, there's either regulation or political dynamics in the U.S. start to correct themselves, I don't I don't see social media improving. Eric Markley with us, Ph.D. Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, and our divisive world and social media contributing to that. More voices is their balance. Eric, is, uh, or rather, Eric, thank you so much for the time and insight on this. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on. News coming out today. Uh, Sidney Poitier has passed away at the age of 94. What a screen presence uh, this man had. And, of course, groundbreaking, uh, winning a Best Actor Oscar, the first black person to ever do that. Let's bring in Robert Thompson, founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University, and is with us now. Robert, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. I hope you are, too. Very well. And, Robert, before we get started, I just wanted to give you a big kudos to your appearance on, uh, I remember seeing a few months ago, CNN did a, uh, a series on late-night TV, and you were uh, prominent in that. And what an interesting uh, series that was to watch. Oh, that was a fascinating uh, uh, series. Late-night TV's been around almost as long as television's been around. And uh, interesting, with that note, do you see any major changes in that format? Then we're going to get to Sidney Poitier. Uh, in the near future, everything seems to sort of, sort of be the same. We've seen these shows go in and out of COVID protocol and such, doing them from home. I love Jimmy Kimmel's version of all of that. Uh, do you see anything different coming? Well, there'll be little COVID uh, changes. Uh, James Corden, I think, just uh, passed uh, uh, tested positive, so he's... Uh, uh, on break, yeah. uh, Fallon tested positive while they were on uh, break, and some of the changes they made uh, during COVID actually have stuck. Uh, the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, 
uh, really changed its style thanks to the in-home uh, production, and they've kept that now that they're back in the studio. So a little bit of stylistic changes, but the big differences were part one when Johnny Carson took over tonight, tonight show, that set what late night was. Part two was when David Letterman uh, started his show in 1982. That changed everything. And part three, John Stewart in uh, about 2000 yeah. or so. Um, that was the you know the big third phase of uh, late night, and the one we're still in, which is much more political than it was prior to that. All right, let's talk about Sidney Poitier. I remember being a kid and watching old black and white movies with my parents, and and, and Sidney Poitier would come on the screen. I remember even even as a kid thinking, wow. Wow, this guy has quite a presence. Yeah, I mean, what uh, made him stand out? Start. Uh, yeah, he was a movie star's movie star, and this guy, he was big uh, in the fifties, sixties, uh, uh, even into the nineteen uh, seventies. Uh, he was a star. He became a director of some significant uh, uh, programs, including Stir Crazy with Richard Pryor. Uh, he even went into TV. Uh, did TV movies, uh, one as Thurgood Marshall, another as Nelson Mandela, and then, of course, as a civil rights leader as well. So uh, he he had quite a left quite a legacy all over the place. And blazed a trail in the 1960s when it was a pretty tumultuous time, especially in the United States with race relations. Right. I you know he even started that in the uh, 50s, even the early 50s. I think. Uh, uh, Cry the Beloved Country was what, 1951 maybe? Blackboard Jungle, which introduced yeah. Rock Around the Clock, uh, that was, uh, 55. Um, Porgy and Bess, uh, 59. Raising the Sun, 61. Uh, and then of course he won the Oscar for 1963's Lilies of the Field. But 1967, if you had to point to one year, in a single year he did In the Heat of the Night, playing a detective, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, playing a doctor, and To Serve with Love, playing a teacher, all in 1967, and those were all monumental films. Many say, many black uh, black actors say that it was stereotypical roles that they would get at this time. How did he break through that? Well, he was, uh, uh, and he, he did break through, but th- that was the good news. The bad news was he was about the only one to break through. As for a leading uh, role for a black uh, male actor uh, back then, he, he had a number of important roles, but he was kind of alone for a while uh, in having that. Um, I think part of it was that he, as you pointed out, he was such a presence. He was such a uh, a great actor for uh, uh, for the screen uh, and stage, for that matter. Um, uh, and the projects that were beginning to emerge as we got into the post-war uh, era, uh, he managed to get. Some people, though, complained within the black community that uh, even those roles, he tended to be, you know, a black star and otherwise white cast. He was very seldom given. Uh, uh, very many uh, like romantic kinds of uh, things, even mm. in Guess Who's Coming to Dinner when he is about to uh, marry someone. Uh, he wasn't allowed to be given the usual romantic kind of roles that uh, uh, would go to romantic leads uh, um, uh, during that time. Um, but he did uh, uh, break through, and of course, when Denzel Washington won his Oscar, he very much uh, uh, thanked and praised uh, the ground and real estate that was settled by Poitier. Here's a quick clip of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Sidney Poitier. Mom, this is John. Dr. Prentice, I'm so pleased to meet you. I'm pleased to meet you, Mrs. Drayton. 
I take it Joanna's already busted out with the big news. Well, she has um, t told me a good deal, and all very quickly, too. She's only known me for 10 days, so she can't tell you when I'm blushing. <laughs> Uh, that's Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn uh, in the roles as well. Uh, again, when, you very... can, uh, when you're an actor who can actually upstage the likes of Catherine Hepburn <laughs> and Spencer Tracy, that's quite an actor. That's a very good point, Robert. That's an excellent point. Talk about the trail that he blazed. Because, you know, you think about this back in the 1960s. You know, if this is where we were in the 1960s, it didn't really take off. I mean, there's still been the same difficulty for black actors. Right. I mean, we had, what, as late as 1999, the NAACP did that report on uh, uh, diversity in Hollywood, and it, uh, that report was very, very uh, uh, negative. Uh, Hollywood tried to respond to that. And uh, how it was just not that many years ago with the whole Oscars so white uh, yeah. thing. And, of course, uh, uh, one of the reasons the Golden Globes is not going to be seen anywhere uh, when those awards are announced on Sunday uh, is because, in fact, it came out that uh, there wasn't a single black member in the entire voting uh, pool uh, for those awards. So uh, he blazed a lot of trails, but by no means uh, uh, have we arrived at some utopian uh, uh, position. There's still a lot of uh, a lot of work to be done in that uh, in that respect. Valid point. Robert Thompson with his founding. moved on to directing, too, which I think was, was an important uh, uh, part in his career. Where he, giving yeah, him more say in the business, obviously. The camera, but behind as well. And giving him more say in the business as a result of that, more clout. Right, right, right. Robert Thompson with his founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture, Syracuse University. Robert, thank you so much for the time. Be well. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the ring.